This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And I'm Roland Martinek from, uh, I guess, New York and Dallas. Yeah, from parts unknown. Raul, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start with your background. Well, sure. Uh, look, in, in terms of, you know, my involvement in the space, I, I kind of got in not like out of college or anything like that. It was kind of more happenstance. I was uh, in between a lot of different jobs and had a friend that was starting a, a telecom business. I didn't know what the word telecom meant. This is in the kind of 95 era. Uh, so that's how it got me into the space. So it happened kind of uh, accidentally. And, uh, you know, here we are, you know, 26 years later, and I've had, you know, some fun experiences over those those 26 years, you know, ended up obviously, uh, you know, running businesses on behalf of, of sponsors in the space. And, you know, Databank, which is the business I'm currently with, is the, the fifth company that I've been, you know, had the, the pleasure to be CEO of, the honor to be CEO of. And when I think about those five different experiences, right, it's kind of like your children. It's like you can't pick one that you can like more than the other. They're all different. They all did something different uh, and provided something different to you as, as, a, as a learning experience. But, you know, like almost everyone, you know, got in, into the telecom space, you know, pre pre kind of commercialization of the Internet, pre Telecom Act of 96. So, you know, the first 15 years was, you know, SELEC land, uh, which, again, is where I think a lot of us started. Um, and then obviously the dot com bubble that collapsed, um, you know, got out of that, uh, ran, a, ran a fiber business, which was in Europe um, and, and kind of got out of that in uh, 2010 ish or so. So um, and then so the last 10 years have been more on the cloud and managed services side. Um, you know, uh, from the fiber company, ran a business called Voxel, uh, which are our friends at Packet, um, who are now part of Equinix. And Raj is running uh, Grafana, which is going to, I'm sure, be a huge, huge success in, in kind of the soft open source software side. Um, you know, small data center business in New Jersey called called NetAccess, and then uh, you know made the you know uh, the transition to to DataBank through Digital Bridge. Uh, which happened in 2015. So kind of this last chapter, um, you know, has been going on for about five, six years now. And uh, what's great is it's, it's in, you know, it's a really exciting part, really exciting chapter in, in, in my experiences. And, um, you know, we got a lot of, uh, you know, future ahead of us, which is even more exciting. So before we get into the future, what I want to know is how does somebody going to West Point, getting a degree in political science and then international affairs gets into data centers? You know, it, 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 I think it was because even though that was kind of, you know, some of my interests, uh, you know, when I was growing up and, and from, a, from a school perspective, when I got out of school and got into the workforce, it's kind of when computers started to uh, become popular. And I think just like Phil, it's like all of a sudden had this like instant attraction to them and ended up, you know, becoming, uh, you know, really um, interested in how that worked and 
taught myself, uh, you know, software languages at the time it was uh, called Paradox, uh, which was uh, uh, a database uh, and it was called PAL, Paradox Application Language. So, uh, you know, even though I had, you know, I was bouncing around, you know, from different jobs, I had this side job doing software development for different uh, people that had different uh, Paradox app, uh, database uh, applications. And that's kind of, I think, why my brain was able to wrap around telecommunications, because ultimately, you know, obviously that leads to internet, which leads to software, which comes full circle. So I think that's probably the reason why uh, when the, you know, when the opportunity presented itself, it didn't feel like I was, you know, going into uh, something that I wasn't going to be able to understand and was, uh, you know, maybe aligned with my strengths, which uh, before that I was trying to find something that I was good at and liked and, uh, and had been unsuccessful for, you know, seven, eight years. You know, I have, I have young children. I know you have children that are, that are, that are older than mine. The early childhood years, um, they, uh, the, the best schools are the ones where you have this kind of, the idea of experiential learning, like the Maria Montessori type of style, like allow the kids to foster, you know, where their interests are and have, you know, uh, have the learning experience be something that's more organic. Um, and I think when you have anyone that's our generation of entrance into the kind of data center business, the internet, the, the, the internet business, as it were, uh, really at the nation stages. It's the idea that you, you know, you're, you're not scared of the technology of it because it doesn't really exist. I mean, you're just coming up uh, at the same time as the technology. So it's not mature enough to intimidate you. So, you know, the fact, how, how much of that do you think um, made it so, you know, your success story, which is one for the ages. I mean, if anybody, uh, we don't have enough time on this broadcast to go into how unbelievably awesome Raul Martinek is um, and, and the history and the stories and the ups and downs. You know, how much of the, the timing and, and just the idea that you were open to these new opportunities and you just, you were able to, to learn our business through experiencing it as opposed to, you know, trying to study it in a textbook and then, you know, apply that textbook knowledge. How much of a benefit do you think that was? Yeah, listen, I think it was a huge benefit, right? And I'll tell you why, because if you look at kind of how advanced things have gotten in 25 years, I think it'd be hard to like just stumble into it today, right? I mean, today, obviously, there's some percentage of, of the population that can figure that out, but most people need to, uh, you know, go to school and and, and study for a while to, to make a, uh, an impact there immediately. But, you know, again, in the, in the mid nineties, this was all kind of new stuff, right? Networking was new stuff. And, um, and obviously, you know, the, the internet was new and, you know, all these, uh, all these tools were in their version 1.0 or prior to version 1.0. So I guess I was, you know, it was fortunate timing, right? Because it's purely, you know, uh, an accident of timing, right? It could have happened 10 years before, it could have happened, you know, 10 years after, but, you know, our our generation was lucky enough to kind of live through that pre-era and understand what that means and then kind of be able to start working that era for the lucky few like us and now kind of see what the world is like, right? And what's amazing, right, is like you talk to younger kids or like my kids, it's like they have zero conception that 25 years ago, the world was 100% different than what it is today. And again, no one assumes that it was ever any different, right? And that's the part that is, um, you know, crazy. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, being able to be at the, at the beginning of that 
certainly gives us like a sense of perspective that I think, you know, other folks don't have because they're just assumed that the world was always this way. The world is going to be different in another 25 years. So looking at where you're at today in your career, what are some of the things that the younger generation should be looking at or putting some time and effort into? Well, look, I mean, uh, you know, when we're, you know, obviously I'm part of, uh, you know, a, a data bank, which is uh, our lead investors, digital colony, which is one of the, the leading investors in, you know, digital infrastructure, right? And we define digital infrastructure as all those things that kind of make, you know, communication to a device like this possible, right? So cellular infrastructure, towers and small cells, fiber, uh, and then data center, right? If you think about those three links in the chain, that's the physical manifestation of the modern internet. And, you know, Colony's been, you know, very successful at, you know, seeding, you know, about 15 different platform companies, almost $20 billion of invested capital across those three silos. And when we're fundraising, you know, investors will always ask you, you know, well, you know, what, 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 why is this stuff happening? And, you know, is there going to be an end to it? And what do you see that could disrupt the industry? And, you know, I've, I've kind of come to the answer that I now uh, recite is like, if you think about what we're doing, right, is we are basically underpinning the adoption of technology, period, right? Everything that is happening right here with us, on your computer, on your TV, on your on your smartphone, all the other stuff, it's, it's basically humanity deciding that, yes, we are going to embrace technology and we're gonna use it to for entertainment and for education and for B2B and for B2C and for everything you could ever imagine, right? And then ultimately, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, that's the only thing that would retard our industry, right? If there was a Luddite moment where people decided, no mas, we don't want any more technology. We think that social media is evil, right? We think that artificial intelligence is creepy and could result in, you know, robots taking over the world. It's that attitude that would put a brakes on, uh, you know, humanity adopting technology in our industry, building out the foundations to enable the consumption of that technology. And I don't think that's changing. Certainly not in our kids' generation, right? I mean, they're more addicted to technology even than we are. So I think, you know, for young kids, you know, to be involved in that trend, which is, again, broadly speaking, technology adoption, and then you got to decide which sector do you want to do it, right? I mean, we're in the infrastructure sector. Our, you could say our sector is, you know, quote unquote simple, right? Hey, we build buildings, we build cell towers, and we dig trenches and put fiber in it, right? Obviously, I'm simplifying, but you get what I'm saying. Then there's, you know, the people that are writing the software that rides on top of all that. That's pretty complicated, right? And then there's very specialized areas, obviously, like, you know, data scientists for machine learning and artificial intelligence. I, uh, uh, one of my former uh, co-workers who was our CIO at Eureka, the telecom business, his name is Donald Martin. He works for Google right now. And I caught up with him a couple of weeks ago. And he's basically an ethicist for Google. He is basically spending his time working with a lot of the developers there around how to make artificial intelligence ethically, you know, uh, aware. And so there's, I mean, another, you know, um, talk about a, a very specialized area. So um, that, that's, I think, you know, 
from uh, from uh, young people coming into our sector. I think it's an exciting time, right? Because we've seen a lot of change in the last 25 years and kind of the birth of this uh, this this sector. But I think the next 25 years kind of you know takes it to the next level in terms of where all these investments could go and what they would do and what their impact will be to humanity. The two, my two takeaways from that. One is for any of the young people listening, if you have an idea and you want to raise money from an investor, all you have to do is tell the investor that you're underpinning the adoption of technology and <laughs> they will just throw money at you. Um, the other thing is, I don't necessarily think those the, the, the two ideas are mutually exclusive, right? You can think that social media is evil and that AI is creepy. Both of, both of those things have you know, a, a significant amount of truth to them and a, a recognition that we are only embracing technology more and more in our everyday life. I think the last year has proven that certainly with you know, online learning and telehealth and, and all that stuff that, that has come up in you know, podcast after podcast after podcast, we, we, you know, we launched this thing at, at really the beginning of the pandemic and it's been, you know, uh, the consensus has been that we have just kind of accelerated the adoption of technology and to a certain extent, um, you know, uh, maybe shown more acutely the gap between the people that have access to technology and those that don't. And, you know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a significant gap. How much do you think that gap you know, I know that Data Bank as a company, you know, focuses, you know, some of its efforts in quote unquote tier two and tier three markets, you know, these cities that are not necessarily football cities. Uh, and how much of, you know, I think the expansion of technology outside of the main urban centers is going to drive uh, growth from your perspective in, you know, our industry and, and beyond? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I from that perspective, you know, that that. Uh, you know, our view is that, you know, we're, we're entering kind of another kind of transition phase for kind of the evolution of internet infrastructure, right? And it's interesting how it tends to oscillate between, you know, centralized approaches, decentralized approaches, and this whole thing, you know, which obviously the most overused word uh, over the last five years, the edge, right? And, you know, what does that mean? Everyone uses that word in terms of their business and uh, you know what their strategy is. But from, from our perspective as a data center op developer and operator, what that means is what you were saying there, uh, Phil, is that there's going to be a lot more infrastructure in a lot more places. In other words, that the architecture of the internet is gonna go back to uh, a more decentralized manner. And to think about how, you know, wh where did this start, let's say 20 years ago, right? Dot uh, com bubble error, right? And if, you know, you go into any office building, any office in America at that time, and they all had a data center, right? It was called a computer room. And it didn't matter if you were on the 55th floor of like some primo office tower in Chicago or New York City, they, someone would open a door and there'd be, you know, 3,000 square feet of RSF there, right? I mean, it was crazy, right? And the last 20 years, that infrastructure has migrated to a relatively small number of locations, you know, which are public cloud data centers, uh, you know, private cloud data centers and multi-tenant uh, data centers like Databank runs. And this edge, in my view, is just simply the pendulum swinging back and us realizing that to adopt more technology and to solve other challenges, that technology is going to have to be in a lot more spots. 
And that means exactly what you said, where it's going to go to not only secondary markets, but, you know, all different types of locations, even within primary markets, right? Because you look at a data center map of, let's say, the San Francisco area. And yeah, there's a lot of buildings that are data center buildings, but they tend to be clustered in a, in a couple areas, right? Like Santa Clara. But, you know, edge to me from a data center perspective means is there's going to be racks in a lot more locations. And that's why we made the investment in edge presence, because we believe this modular data center solution is going to have some role in the future. It's still very early, but with that kind of macro trend, it's going to become relevant. So, you know, you mentioned you mentioned one thing, um, and uh, it's it's a word that over the entirety of my career, which I think is like 350 years now, um, you hear the word pendulum over and over again. When people started cloud adoption, you know, there was this talk of the pendulum was shifting from, you know, people moving to the cloud, and then the pendulum started shifting back to people reclaiming some of that infrastructure because of, you know, cloud sprawl and, and, and costs going out of control. You know, and I think that that's an important piece that, um, you know, kids don't really, it's not something that they study, right? If somebody goes to school and they study technology or they study, they don't necessarily study the mechanics of the way these markets shift in a way that gives them that kind of bird's eye view that I think is incredibly valuable uh, if you want to be successful really in our space or any other vertical. This notion that people's, like what, what the proclivities of the consumer base is, whether that's small to medium-sized enterprise or or, you know, somebody going into a supermarket or whatever are constantly changing and they're vacillating really from two different um, from two different areas. Right. It's all of one thing and then all of the other thing. And there's no reason to believe that if some if, if the market is moving in one direction, it's not going to move back. In fact, history would suggest that it will uh, inevitably move back. And if you can stay ahead of that, then you can be in, incredibly successful. Um, is there a way that you think you can articulate that idea of pendulum shifting, how do you make someone learn that without well, having experienced it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, like in terms of articulating it, right, it, it almost sounds like a formula, right? Uh, I don't know what that formula would be, but I, I think I have some idea. I mean, I think we both have some ideas what those inputs would be, right? I mean, ultimately, one of the huge inputs, of course, is bandwidth, right? I mean, bandwidth has you know, with all the ebbs and flows of bandwidth has resulted in a lot of different technology choices, right? I mean, you remember when bandwidth was really, you know, uh, expensive, right? That's when things like terminal emulation and, you know, just being able to have a thin client made a ton of sense, right? Because the bandwidth was so expensive that to propagate a technology out in a, in a wide area, you couldn't uh, do that without having some way to skinny down the amount of information that got consumed at the edge, right? And then you think about something like Netflix, right? I mean, that just came up because, again, bandwidth was more plentiful. So rather than, you know, people go to, you know, stores, remember, I mean, who the, Blockbuster, it's amazing, it's gone, right? All this stuff. Well, it didn't start because bandwidth was plentiful. It started because postmen were plentiful, right? They sent you a DVD. For those kids out there, a DVD is like a disc that you used to put into a player, and that's how you had to watch a movie. You don't have to do that anymore. Exactly, because now bandwidth is plentiful, so all of a sudden it, it changed the calculus. So I think that I think that, that kind of uh, seesaw, that pendulum, will continue to 
move and it will move in different ways depending on the application and, and the use case and you know what it, and the person and, um, and the target, right? Because some things can be done with existing technology and other things can't. So they're going to come up with a way around it. So I think bandwidth is one. And then the other two elements, of course, would be, you know, data, right? And, you know, obviously we, we know about data gravity and, and kind of its impact on how you think about things, where you compute, what you can achieve geographically. And then the other one is like, like this computation, right? Which is processing. So I think it's those three formulas or those three inputs certainly are three core inputs. There's probably more. There is more, I'm sure, that I'm not thinking about right now. And it's those, and that's the relationship between those three inputs, the cost per each of those, and then the problem that someone's trying to solve that then results in a different outcome or a different um, opportunity from a, from an entrepreneurship perspective. I'll summarize what you said, and I'll, I'll Phil and I have been talking about quite some time as well, the pendulum swing, the centralization or decentralization of computing platforms every decade. And it's going to continue to happen as more and more information is required and needed by by user at their fingertips. What impact with the recent Democrats' uh, $40 billion investment in expanding internet do you see it's going to have on computing as it stands today with Edge or Cloud? We're going to use that political science degree if we have to drag it out of here. Yeah, I mean, I actually, um, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but obviously there's a I think there's a hundred billion, right, for broadband adoption in the in kind of the two trillion dollar infrastructure uh, uh, proposed bill. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't like investigated any of the details, but from what I've read, uh, it looks like a lot of that is to point is you know to use those dollars to try to eliminate this digital divide, which is I think in two buckets, right? There's a digital divide, which is purely economic, right? That there's, you know, people that, you know, a broadband connection at 60 bucks a month or whatever it is, is expensive. So some of that money would be used to allow people that can't afford that to be able to use that because that service is available in their geography, but there's an economic issue for them to adopt it, right? That's one part of the digital divide. And then the other part is, you know, mainly kind of underserved areas, right? But there we're talking about, you know, rural America and being able to, you know, ensure that, you know, populations that have very poor bandwidth because they're in rural areas have access to, you know, whatever above uh, some, you know, some minimum standard of, of throughput. So, look, I think, that be, you know, I think that that's all good. Um, I'm not sure how much it moves the needle in the U.S., right, in terms of, you know, um, being a real driver to the continuing trends. I mean, um, I'm pretty sure that the statistics on kind of broadband adoption and internet adoption and internet penetration in the U.S. are very high. They're in the in the 80s and 90s. A lot of that is generational, as you know. You know, my mom is just not going to be a big broadband user. I I don't care what subsidy you give her, and if she was living in a rural area, if you brought a big pipe to her, it would you know it wouldn't it wouldn't move the needle there, right? So I think so, some of this is is generational and is going to, you know, dissipate over time. 
And but then the other piece is, you know, um, you know, just from a fairness perspective, I think that's where I think a lot of those dollars um, are designed to go because, as we do know, um, you know, if you can kind of embrace this stuff and are uh, fluent and conversant with this, it opens up a lot of opportunity from, a, you know, uh, from a job, um, you know, situation perspective. Absolutely. And recapturing more data along the way as well. What are some of the key drivers that you're looking for, like in your future expansions or investments? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, we're as a data center operator, you know, we're agnostic to technology adoption uh, because ultimately it just ends up in a data center. Right. So the beautiful thing is we we don't have to bet on a particular technology. We got to bet that as to my earlier point that there'll be a continual consumption of technology where, you know, where we're making investments is around geography, right? Again, we do believe that, you know, when you step back and think about where a lot of data center development has occurred, it's happened in a relatively small number of markets like Ashburn and Santa Clara and Chicago and Dallas. And that ultimately as part of this decentralization trend, there's going to be more of that infrastructure in other markets, many of the markets that, that data banks in, and even in kind of very highly geographically specific locations, which is where the edge presence solution comes in. So we're um, very attuned to, you know, where those new areas uh, are likely to be and to ensure that uh, we have inventory in those areas. Again, in the data center world, you don't move too fast, right? Things are measured in 12 months because you know, acquiring land, entitling it, bringing power to it, bringing up a shell, commissioning it. That's not something that happens in, you know, in, in 60 days, right? Uh, obviously, there's ways to accelerate it with brownfield and things like that. But ultimately, it's still uh, um, kind of a cycle that's measured in probably a 12 month or at least a six month increment. Um, and then the second piece, though, of that is connectivity, right? Because we do believe that Connectivity will increasingly become more of a differentiator for data center operators and being able to allow your customers that are in that data center to access and discover other resources, other partners, other places to connect to is going to be more and more important. So we are investing in that area and the Zicolo acquisition, which brought, you know, 44 data centers, 20 of which were these highly interconnected uh, uh, locations with Zayo Networks as our anchor customer, we think those are ripe for that type of solution. So that's what uh, we're investing in, you know, in, in 2021 and beyond. If I might add, it caused, it caused a little bit more graying around the right side of your hair. I'm noticing it more great post-acquisition than pre-acquisition. I do have one question on your last point, which is, you know, you mentioned that you're really in tune to, you know, the the, the geographic regions uh, in which you want to develop data centers. Is there a specific thing that you look for within those regions? Is it population growth? Is it, you know, uh, following where, you know, the public cloud providers are determining that they want to have facilities where Facebook decides they want to build a facility or, or some other enterprise, you know, decides they're, they're putting some resources to work that, that leads you to what, what's going to create the justification for Databank to build their giant Sheboygan campus? Yeah, listen, I think it's the second one that you mentioned. It's you follow your customer. Right. I mean, ultimately, we're here to support kind of the evolution of our customer base. Right. 
Uh, obviously, uh, you know, we have 3,000 customers right now. There's a lot of different reasons they want to be in a lot of different geographies. So there isn't one answer. There's many different answers. And our job is to kind of assimilate all these interactions that we have with our customers and then distill them into, you know, a certain number of locations. Because, you know, all, you know, again, our, our business is extremely capital intensive, you know, uh, you know, pick your number, you know, 7 million or 10 million of megawatts, depending on where you're going to be building it. You know, you're building out 20, 30 megawatts, 40 megawatts a year. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just in new construction. Forget about maintenance, forget about your cloud and managed services. So, I mean, our job is to really be thoughtful around where we deploy that capital. Because back to my earlier point, you start spending money today, uh, you're not seeing the cash come in from that investment for 12 or 18 months, or maybe even 24 months. So anything you can do to accelerate that cash flow to obviously allow you to earn a return on the investment that you made is super, super important. And that's why we need to be very careful. But, you know, Phil, you know, you see the trends, right? We you know who is who is driving data center consumption in our industry. Again, no secret that it's hyperscale and the leading kind of plot, you know, content and technology companies. They overwhelmingly drive leasing compared to, let's say, traditional enterprise. Uh, so, you know, those customers are super important to everyone in the space. And, you know, everyone has different kind of relationship with those accounts, some deeper, some thinner some on the wholesale side, some on the edge side, some on, you know, specific uh, customer requirement side. So, you know, again, our, our, our job is to uh, make sure that we can align ourselves with these accounts in as many different ways and across as many different geographies as possible to maximize, you know, our ability to, you know, capture that demand. But, you know, again, space, super, super competitive, there's no shortage of other players in the space and very competent players. And ultimately, you know, we just need to execute on our strategy. We don't need to, you know, um, worry about how anyone else is doing. Phil had asked a question earlier whereby you are primarily focused on tier two and tier three environments. What are some of the up and coming underserved areas around the world that uh, you are looking at? Well, so so I, I think our, our business and, you know, that's absolutely was a, a fair characterization of Databank prior to the Zcolo transaction where we were in nine markets of which, you know, seven of, the, seven of them were more secondary markets. You know, the Zcolo transaction brought you know, uh, uh, 25 other markets um, with some overlap. We're now in 29 markets. And now we're more or less split between kind of, let's call them primary markets uh, and secondary markets. So we're seeing, uh, and, and obviously are now more focused on, you know, the whole the whole spectrum of, of different geographies. You know, I'll, I'll talk from a, a U.S. perspective, data bank, you know, that's our, that's our real focus. We do have some assets in the U.K. and France, that came with the Zcolo transaction, but they weren't a meaningful part of the overall portfolio. But just speaking to the U.S., I mean, I think you know, all these. I think all, almost all of these markets are going to become important for uh, a certain subset of players. Um, and again, I, I don't want to disclose which markets uh, we really like and which ones we don't. Uh, we'll let that. We're looking. We're looking at you, Sheboygan. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll let people make their own assumptions on that. But, you know, we're seeing success in, 
in a number of markets that span across tier one and tier two, right? Um, and again, it's back to really understanding who your customer is, what problems they're trying to solve, what initiatives do they have, and then how do you align yourself so that you can be a, a good partner to help them achieve their initiatives. And again, there isn't one, there's dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of these parallel conversations going on. And then we assimilate all that and put that into a forecast and then decide to you know, put shovels in the ground in a certain amount of markets. I mean, um, we just kicked off um, a number of expansions in the legacy Z Colo footwear expanding in uh, in LA, uh, in Vegas, in Atlanta, in in Ashburn, uh, in Chicago, uh, and then on the data bank side, you know, we had already had existing projects in in Minneapolis, in Salt Lake, uh, also in Atlanta. So you know, so it's a wide it's a wide net, and that's because there's a lot going on in the space right now, and. Again, it's there's a it's a good time to be in the space if uh, if you have the right set of platforms and profile, um, and uh, we're just you know, again trying to get our fair share of of, of that demand. What do you um, think is the biggest challenge that you're seeing? Uh, we always talk about a limited amount of talent pool in our space as more and more technology is being deployed. The talent pool is shrinking. Are you experiencing the same thing? And if so, uh, what are you doing to combat that? Yeah, you know, that, that, that um, I think, uh, you know, at least our, our, our experience with the talent pool is, of course, listen, uh, top talent is always difficult to attract and retain, right? And that's where, you know, where how you attract talent is first by worrying about the talent that you have, right? Worrying about the culture within your company, how people are feeling, are they, do, are they satisfied, are they engaged and passionate? about what they're doing because every day, I mean, that's the, that's what drives your business, right? They, the people drive your business and they are, you know, what drives your relationship with your customers. Cause again, your customers are interacting with people. They're not interacting with an API, at least not in the data center space. Right. So that is where it starts. Again, I think, you know, data bank, you know, from inception had a very good foundation there. We've been very careful about the acquisitions uh, that we've done in terms of ensuring that they're good businesses with good, um, you know, not only asset foundations, but human capital foundations. And then we've spent a lot of energy and dollars uh, assimilating that uh, from a cultural perspective and actually have been very proactive around that in terms of understanding, you know, what are the makeups of the people within the company? And then how do we create a culture where everyone can kind of feel they're, like they're on the same team? So starting with that, that allows you to you know retain your talent. And then that type of feedback, again, Phil, and you guys, this space is big, but it isn't that big. You can call up anyone you know, and they probably know someone that works at Databank or works at CoreSight or works at uh, Equinix or works at Evoke or Flexential. And it's pretty simple for people that are in the space to figure out, do they want to work at that company or not, right? And that's the way we've been, you know, doing it very slowly, brick by brick. Again, we're, you know, we're not, we don't have the challenge of, we got to hire a thousand people this month, right? I mean, you know, like an AWS or someone like that does, but, you know, we're, we're 700 people today, you know, we'll, 
you know, we'll definitely go to a thousand by the end of, you know, uh, I'd say at least by the end of next year. And we think that that kind of cadence, we can curate uh, that type of talent and be very, you know, discerning around, you know, the folks that, that join the business. And obviously, you know, it's a very competitive market out there. So people will vote with their feet, but um, we feel good about that. And, you know, I think every company, you know, um, it needs to have their own strategy around, you know, uh, talent acquisition and retainment. So we had a uh, we had a friend of yours on the the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, Peter Hopper, and one of the one of the things that I uh, tried to bring up to Peter because it's so it's one of the things that he gets that you know the typical kind of private equity folks don't really put a lot of stock in that you had mentioned. Uh-huh is culture, like company culture is so unbelievably important. Um, and, you know, I've always, I've always felt that, um, uh, of course. And, you know, you acquired, you made a huge acquisition. I mean, more, you, you acquired someone larger than yourself um, right. in, in the Z Colo acquisition, and you did it in the midst of a, uh, a pretty wacky time, you know, pandemic wise and, and all that. Have you seen any difficulty in, in focusing on, on culture and assimilation? What, what changes have you made? Um, you know, whereas, you know, previously you could have, you know, um, you know, a big kickoff party or on site or get everybody together. And, you know, I assume, you know, you're probably doing some traveling, but not nearly the level that you would have, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, uh, what, what changes have you made? What, how, how is that presented? How is the pandemic presented unique challenges to focus on culture and integrating those, those things and making sure that, you know, Nat doesn't scare everyone off? <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, okay, number one, it's like if someone had told you, me a year ago that, you know what, you can close a deal, like, you know, a big deal like this, you know, virtually, and not really travel and do kind of the interaction, personal interaction that happens. I'd be like, you're crazy. You can't do that, right? But I think that type of situation, just like we've discovered by this call and others, is it's amazing how much you can do, uh, you know, virtually if you embrace the tools that there are and you think of substitute ways to do what you just described, right? Yes, like you're saying, in the past, we would have all been spending our time thinking about how do we plan some offsite with the top 50 managers and we'll do one in the East and one in the West and one in the central. And we used to go to, you know, seven, you know, holiday parties because they were in different markets and think about all the time and and money you burn doing that, you know, traveling. And all of a sudden you realize that guess what? You can do a lot of this stuff in, in group settings that are manageable over video and, you know, for us, you know, as I mentioned, we, we already had invested in, in kind of culture and uh, trying to create a unified, um, you know, vernacular in the company because of the acquisitions we had done prior to Zcolo. We took all that work and we were able to immediately use that with the, our new Zcolo colleagues. And, you know, we have, um, you, know, a, you know, a program where we have, brand and culture ambassadors that meet on a regular basis and give us the pulse. We have surveys that we do that have like 70% of our employees respond to them and they give us really brutal feedback about what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And then the managers as a team, we spend a lot of time. I have a what we call our L1, L2, L3 call. It's about 80, about 60 people. It's going to be on Thursday and we're going to talk about 
what happened in Q1, what went well, what didn't go well, what we need to work on, where we're seeing stress in the organization. So it, I, I don't think the fact that we can't really move around that much um, is an excuse to not do those types of fundamental things that you can do to create that assimilation that, again, in the old days, we used to put it off because it's okay, I'm going to go travel to X market in a month and I'll break some bread and go out to dinner and have a drink then. Now you got to find a different way of doing that, right? And it can be, uh, you know, a, a call with me and, you know, a manager and their 10 or their eight direct reports and vice versa. And we can have our sales kickoff call and we can have our sales results call every month and we can have a Cola review call every month. We can have a managed service review call every month with, you know, 15 people, 20 people, 30 people, 10 people. And if you have a cadence that also aligns with your organizational goals, your budget goals, then it's 100% doable in my view. And then when you do have the face-to-face, it's actually really fun because you've already kind of seen that person. You've already got a little bit of the nonverbal aspect of their personality and now you get to, to meet them face-to-face and you connect all those remaining dots. And I think that will be the exciting part, hopefully, about the second half of the year, right? Is that we've spent all this time doing a lot of stuff already together in a virtual fashion. And now we'll be able to venture out into the world and have more face-to-face. And I think we'll see um, more of a, you know, a tightening of, that, of those bonds. And again, but there's no substitute for... Phil, just not working on it, right? People, this is not going to happen if you don't make it a priority at the executive level and, and all the way down. It doesn't say, it, it sounds like you think that you're not going to go back to the way things were. And it sounds like there's a significant amount of efficiency gained by maintaining a lot of that stuff virtually um, and just leaving the in-person meetings to the extent that, you know, they can start happening um, to, to really more, uh, you know, fun uh, uh, events rather than, you know, trying to dot all the I's and cross all the T's in person like we used to in the, in the olden days. Yeah. I, I, I haven't spoken to any CEO who believes we're going back to where we were. And I don't know about your experience, but that I, I just look, I think we were, you know, all the way over here. We went all the way over here. And my hope is that we'll find some place in the middle where we'll travel for high impact type of situations. And then the rest of it will be delegated to this uh, because it's proven to be effective. It's proven that it works, right? So there's no doubt in my view that, again, we'll, we'll go back to somewhere, at least initially, right? We'll, and we'll figure out you know, how much of a, how much of uh, you know of that element was part of our you know human DNA, and how much of it was just we just didn't realize that we were being inefficient and you know productive, right? I mean, listen, people used to send faxes, right? And and guess what? No one does that anymore, right? You send an email. Why? Because it's more efficient, right? So you know, for the why, kids why, out there, they're listening. There used to be like a phone you dialed. It was like a copy machine. It's very. I can't even describe it. Um, well, but it was. Uh, that's how people used to send messages. Well, you know, do yourself a favor and see how many times someone hands you a business card. Again, you don't really get to do that much too often. But there's still a lot of people that put their fax number on their business card, which I find just <laughs> effing crazy, right? I refuse. I like to- my kids to understand history, so I bought both of my kids fax machines when they were born. <laughs> 
just so they. Yeah, make it, and, you know. and listen, I think, and I think companies are going to vote with their, with their pocketbook, right? Certainly, us when we put our 2021 budget together, we didn't budget what we had in travel in 2019, or you know, we budgeted you know 60% of that, 50% of that. So that's how we're going to enforce it. It's like there just isn't the dollars. Sorry, and right. and guess what? No excuse because we know you can get the job done because it's worked for the last 14 months. I mean, traveling in general was so inefficient. I mean, Nabil has done more of it, I think, than than any of us having uh, you know living on some far off island in the middle of the Pacific. But um, it's just the amount of of time you have to spend in you know, the collab, the periphery of of a specific event is so inefficient. Forget about the carbon footprint and all that stuff. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think centralizing the Pendulum swing is imperative, but then you've got leaders like Satya Nadell from Microsoft and the chairman of JP Morgan Chase. They want everybody back in the offices. I think it's the digital nomads and people that fall under our age bracket and not necessarily to silo people out or define age gaps, but there is totally a generational gap that's been identified through COVID-19 that people that are technologists or futurists or, or live and breathe in this space, they value that you can get things done remotely. The efficiencies and the KPIs are showing the gains, particularly in the last year. Whereas there is that mindset, you know, people, for instance, that I've worked in the past as well, that they measured their success with the number of bums in the seat or the cars in the parking lot to now what the performer shows. I think you're right. And again, it's gonna be really, it, the you know, again, the end of 2021 and 2022 is gonna be really interesting to see where that all settles out. And I'm sure we're gonna hear examples on both sides. I'm sure we're gonna hear the example of the person that swears the business did better because everyone came back into the office. And we're gonna hear the example of the person that says, swears that the business did better because everyone stayed away from the office, right? I think ultimately, how about we make up our own mind? How about we decide and think deeply about what worked from a virtual perspective, what did it, and how do we make sure that we use virtual where it made sense? And let me give you a perfect example. As you well know, it's it's near impossible to have a really meaningful meeting, let's say 25, 30 people on, 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 on Zoom. You just can't do it, right? You know, if I wanna get my L1 and L2 team together, which is about 35 people, and I'm hopeful we can do that, you know, late summer because everyone will have a vaccine or will have had COVID and, you know, we'll all be, you know, safe. I want to have that in person because that in a big room to communicate, you know, uh, important initiatives, of what's going on with the company and create that kind of uh, camaraderie among that, you know, a team and then within departments of that same group. That to me makes a ton of sense. Going to... A, X market to meet with the sales engineer to work on a customer proposal, that makes no sense. And guess what? There was a ton of that going on. There was a lot of people that were flying around to have a face-to-face meeting with one or two other people in the company and maybe a customer or a prospect. And guess what? You don't need to do that. That's a waste of money and time for you and for the company. And back to Phil's point, I certainly don't miss waking up at you know 4 a.m. to get a 6 a.m. flight. So I'm in no, I have no interest in doing that. So anyway, I'm hopeful that you know we'll be thoughtful about 
um, how that kind of settles out. But to your point also, Nabil, I think it's going to be a generational thing. And I think we know where the younger generation is on this. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Based on everything that you know, everything that you have done, what would you have done differently if you knew what you know today? <laughs> so um, I never would have lost faith in the internet, right? Because I think after the dot-com bubble, it was such a traumatic event. Everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid. Everyone thought this thing was going to change the world, AKA it did. And then everything exploded and everyone, you know, again, I'm using everyone in quotes and, you know, things evaporated and people turned their back on the space, right? I mean, again, you could, you could have bought Amazon stock for under a dollar in 2000, 2001. Think about how crazy that is. Yeah, so right. I guess what I'm getting out of that is like, make sure that you invest in crypto. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But, you know, but my, back to my earlier point, I think this is a space that has, that's still got multiple decades of growth in it. It's, it's pointed in the exact direction that human nature is pointed in. And there's no way to change that. Again, absent some Luddite moment. I think, um, you know, I, I, I always struggle with, uh, like, what would I tell my younger self? Um, and, you know, the bottom line is all of the experiences have led to this one, and it's kind of difficult to kind of, you know, hopscotch over those experiences. The only reason you know that you shouldn't have, you know, uh, uh, discounted the internet is because you lived through the resurgence of it. But in large part, if you look at, any of these, you know, industries, they all go through these ebbs and flows and you have one calamitous moment, just like in 2008, the real estate bubble, you know, nobody was ever going to buy houses again. Now there's an open house across the street with a hundred cars piled up to go through it, begging to pay 30% more than, than it's listed. If you told people in 2008 that that was going to be the case, they would have thought you were crazy. Right. Um, but that's back to the pendulum uh, conversation where, you know, don't, don't think that the moment that you're in is the definition of how things are going to go. You, you have to take like this broader approach to it. And, you know, I'm going to end on a fairly large point, which is the one thing I, I love a thousand things about you. But one thing that has always stood out to me about Raul Martinek is this ability to do the operator thing, to like be knee deep in a business, but also, you know, speak the kind of investment, uh, you know, economical uh, uh, talk about it. And it's in, it's brilliant. And it's this, this notion of being able to to understand both worlds and understand the motivations of the investor community and, you know, kind of what a business needs and how to articulate that to a particular customer. It is really rare to find that well-rounded uh, type of a, how much, like, how did that happen? Uh, I, I want the younger generation to recognize that they shouldn't just be like, a horse in Central Park with the blinders on. You have to like understand the fulsome approach of maybe not a whole, maybe you don't need to be a CEO. Like everybody can't be a CEO, but to understand like the, the ramifications of what you're working on and how the various things interact with each other and what it means to the business and to the customer. And, and you know, how, how do you express that? How did that happen? Well, look, I think, you know, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, from my perspective, it was kind of, when I told you I started doing software development, was decent at it. And I remember having to make a decision and saying, okay, am I going to just keep 
learning this and get deeper in that, or am I going to learn something that I don't know? And I think it's ultimately that, right? I think people have to decide, right, from their personal development perspective, and, and the answer is different depending on what you're trying to accomplish and what, you know, your personality, right? But ultimately, it's like, I took the approach that once I learn something and I learn it pretty well, I ask myself, what don't I know that well? And how do I learn that well? Right. So it's like if you had, you know, 10 different competencies, right? And you ranked yourself, you know, one to five in each of those, you know, what are the ones that you rank the lowest? And then what can you do to improve that? And that's ultimately how I got to, um, you know, what you said is to have a, a more broader base experience because I went out of my way to make, to find up situations where I could then learn that area. You know, I got out of, out of uh, Info Highway and, you know, I've been, you know, started off as COO, CEO, but coming out of that kind of operational sales side, right? The finance side was the side that I had the least exposure to just simply because of the trajectory of what I had been working on. And I was like, let me find a situation where I can learn that piece better and that's when I found a senior advisor role with a $5 billion hedge fund called Plainfield Asset Management and was able to sit on the principal side of the table and understand how they underwrote things, how they looked at deals, how they sifted through what was a good deal, what was an okay deal, what was a bad deal. And again, and then use those data points to connect with the data points that I already had to get a more holistic picture about this space, right? And then I just continued, you know, marketing would be another area where I, you know, I remember a specific point in my career where I spent uh, a lot of time learning about that. And I think that, but it's about seeking that knowledge, right? It's too easy to be really, really good at machine learning. And then guess what? All you do is study that. And guess what? That's why there's PhDs in those areas, right? They go miles and miles and miles deep and, you know, not very wide. I think for the role that I'm in, which is to understand how to, you know, um, manage and, and grow a business, having a broader kind of portfolio of, 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 of skill sets and knowledge is more effective than a smaller skill set of deeper knowledge. And that comes the desire to learn and continuous to learn. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. It's been wonderful. Great having you. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.